morning. This morning is the uh, first Sunday of Advent. We're going to light the first candle. We, um, we do have an announcement. Um, we ha- we're going to have a dinner next Sunday. Um, and so we will be having lasagna and Davidi from Davidi's and what we need are things like salad and desserts and other side dishes. But so, so whatever you would like to bring, bring. But salad is a good suggestion, but not like everybody brings salad. <laughs> so I can't say anything else about that. That's all there is to it. So um, this morning, and we're, oh, Christmas Eve service is Sunday, so it's just going to be Sunday morning. We're going to have a regular, our Christmas Eve service on Sunday morning, and um, so you only have to come to church one time on Christmas Eve. And actually, we always have a fairly, very small group on Christmas Eve, and so Sunday morning, everybody wants to come, and you should... So, and we'll just do our Christmas Eve service then. Um, this morning, I'm going to do two sermons. So, and in, but in between, there's going to be this little bridge that joins them together. And if you're not careful, you'll miss it, okay? Because <laughs> it's, I'm really forcing this one in there <laughs> to connect them. Um, so the first sermon will be about 35 minutes to be a bridge, and then the next sermon will be about 35 minutes. No, that's, that's not true. But the first sermon will focus kind of on the Bible, and and as we've been kind of this whole series is relearning, unlearning, learning anew, and then strengths and things we as a church have grown in and God has used us in. And so I'm just going to take those two things and mash them together by force this morning. Uh. A guy by the name of Matt Lynch, he's a wrote a book called Flood and Fury. Sounds like a movie. Uh, <laughs> but um, it, it is kind of one of those books. It's a book about violence in the Bible and, and how to address that. If, if really, I, I've, only, I've not read the book, but I've heard him like three times on podcasts. And, and I, I follow one of his, po- his podcasts, but he's... He's been interviewed by other podcasts, too, and I think it's a really good one on that subject. There's several. I've got a stack this big um, of them on that subject, but um, he said this. He says, the Bible consistently challenges and surprises our simplistic expectations. Now, what does that mean? Let me, let me just kind of flesh that out. He's talking about in light of violence in the Bible, but I'm going to move it in a different direction. Proverbs 26, 4 and 5. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you yourself also be like him. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own estimation. What do you do with that? Now, in like the New American Standard and the NIV Bible and the ESV Bible, they add a word into this. After verse 5 says, answer a fool according to his folly deserves. That is not there. This is what it says. Now, here's the weird thing. 
about this. But the, the translation underneath this is the New Living Translation. And so the New, li- New Living Translation translates this more literally than the New American Standard, the ESV, the NIV, the King James Bible. And they say, don't answer the foolish arguments of fools or you will become as foolish as they are. Be sure to answer the foolish arguments of fools or they will become wise in their own eyes. What we're looking at here is when we come to these, uh, how would I say it, challenging things in the Bible. This here, and we, things that seem to have apparent contradiction. What do we do? How do we address it? In this situation, it's a proverb, and what we know, what, what the New American Standard and all those are doing is they're interpreting for us what they understand of it. And what they are saying, the problem, there's a big problem with that, is we don't know why they do that. The reason they do that for Proverbs is that Proverbs are situational. So they don't apply the same to all situations. They apply differently to different situations. Same is true about the Old Testament law. It's very, much of the Old Testament law is situational. It applies differently based on the situation. They would not even have had a concept of the way we do law. It says this, that's it. They would think, what? That's not what law is all about. Law is situational based on the circumstances, how it's applied. And what it causes us to do, it forces us to discern what is going on in this situation. And we would say, and this has nothing to do with the sermon about fools here, but what we would say that, yeah, depending on the situation, you would respond differently. Sometimes you would just, not going there with you. But other times you may need to go there with them. When we come across these difficult, when we have questions and concerns about things come up, what do I do here? What do I think here? What do I believe here? What we need to do in that situation when, it, sorry, I'm just a little bit off here for some reason. Okay, now I'm back. Our tendency, and then we read passages, we, we go to the scripture with our expectations. So we're wondering, what, you know, what, what does God say about this? What does God want me to do here? Go to the Bible. And our tendency is to look for a verse or verses that answers our question. There's nothing wrong with that. And sometimes there is a verse or there are often, there may be verses that answer our question. But the reality is, is often that isn't the case. There are so many things where the Bible just doesn't answer the question directly. We need to be okay with that. 
It's just a reality. The Bible does not address everything going on in the 20, in 21st century. It just doesn't. It does not say anything about AI and chat GPT. There's no verses in the Bible. And so what it requires for us is discernment and thinking. When the Bible doesn't answer our question, doesn't give us a scripture, what we tend to do is look for scriptures or verses that we can, um, that will confirm what we already believe and then make them fit into that. But that's probably not the best way. Let me give some examples of that and how, how we might do this. It's, it's like, um, so we have struggles with anger, but sometimes our anger relates to things that we think are wrong. So how do we deal with that? And that's a reality. And, and there's a, there's, we, we've taught about this often. you know. But what people tend to do is they take the passage, the story where Jesus turns over the tables and takes out the whip in the temple, and they say, see, and they use that to justify their anger. Now, sometimes, of course, there is right saying. We, we understand all that, but that's used all the time. Take a verse like, you know, sport, and it's kind of silly, but athletes, you know, and People on television, professionals, athletes for their sport, they'll, they'll quote verses like, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And what they're saying, that's in Philippians, is that, see, we can win this game through God who strengthens me. Well, that's, that's just not true. It's not, it's, it's not what the verse has nothing to do with that, if you, if you read it. Sometimes we get five verses that say what we want it to say. And it makes sense. But the problem then comes, what happens when all of a sudden we have other verses that all of a sudden say something different and we are challenged. That's the dilemma. That's the challenge. Because we know the Bible cannot contradict itself. The Bible, can, that's, that's true. I would say the Bible does not contradict itself. So that's a legitimate question. So what do we do? Well, here's what we shouldn't do, but we do. We make those verses that don't seem to fit what we believe to be correct verses fit with those verses, whether they fit with those verses or not. It's called harmonizing. We just force them to all go together because the Bible cannot have contradictions and that would concern us. And I personally don't think that is the best way to do it. I think there's a better way. I, and I think it comes from having an understanding of, of what the Bible is and, and how the Bible works and, and what God is trying to do with this book in our lives. There's important stuff in the verses that challenge us and challenge our expectations. 
And God wants us to learn how to rest in that tension and not try to resolve it because it's in the tension God has something to say to us. Let me read this. It says, Jesus was a metaphorical theologian. Okay, that's big words. That is, his primary, his primary method of creating meaning was through metaphor, simile, parable, and dramatic actions rather than through logic and reasoning. Now, that sounds awful to us post-enlightenment, modern-day people. But read the Gospels. The Bible it's, is a story. It is a story. And the real, the way we resolve, the way we understand and sit in the tension is first to focus, start with, and prioritize the forest over the trees. Trees are important and forests are important. But when we go to the Bible, we need to focus on the force, the big story of God that's communicated in the Bible. It's a story that moves from creation to new creation. And that's, that's its entire purpose, to move from creation to new creation. And of course, it all points to Jesus. And the climax of it is Jesus and his death on the cross. To understand what the Bible says about the specific issues that we face, we need to understand those issues in light of the big story. So the Bible is a collection of books written from various perspectives from numerous authors over thousands of years. Yet these tell one unified big story and it all points to Jesus. That is my version of what the Bible Project says on their website. My paraphrase and additions made. The Bible is a meta-narrative that reveals the character and nature of God and then how that relates to his relationship with us. So if we go to the next slide, Exodus 34. This is how we interpret it through the big story. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousandth generation, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Okay, so this is where Moses says, reveal me to me your glory. And God says, all my goodness, I'm going to have passed before you. And then this is what he says. So when God reveals himself, these are the words he uses. Merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. That's how he describes himself. Now, this 
verse is quoted 13 times in the Old Testament. Not fully, but large portions of it, 13 times. And then it is referenced many, many times throughout the Old Testament. But then there's that last part. And this is one of those situations where our simplistic expectations can be challenged. Like, yeah, that's God. And then all of a sudden it says, yet by no means clearing the guilty, but visiting the iniquity of the parents upon the children and the children's children to a third and fourth generation. We think, what in the world does that mean? And how does that relate to, to what he just said? Now, I am not going to explain that because if you want to know the answer to that question, go to the Bible Project and then click on there, watch videos, and then there's a tab that is word studies. And then go to that and then word studies on the character of God. And they have six videos that explain this. So it'll be much better than I could ever do. But what we see from this verse, the big story, is this. His God's love and mercy vastly outweighs his judgment. What it's saying. There is judgment. And we think, well, how can there be judgment and how can there be love and grace and forgiveness? Both of them, but look what it says. It's third and fourth generation. How many generations is, it, is his love and forgiveness? A thousand. Look at how many words he uses to describe how good he is. And then when he talks, he doesn't just say sin. He uses all three Hebrew words for sin. So it's just this overwhelming focus and emphasis on his love. And that describes what he is. And the other one is just something that he does. When we come across challenging verses, the big story of the Bible tells us understand them through God's love, grace, and mercy. Interpret them through the big story of the Bible, which is a story of God's love, grace, and mercy. Jesus kind of does the same thing on the next slide there, Matthew 22. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. So what Jesus says is this. He says, what is the big story for us as disciples? Love God, love people. So anything else that you come across that challenges you and you wonder, how does that fit in? We need to learn to read that. When it comes to our discipleship, our practical living out of the gospel, we need to read it through. How does this relate to me loving God with all my heart and loving people? 
Because if it doesn't fit into that, then our thinking about it is not correct. If it doesn't lead to that, then our thinking about whatever it is we're reading is not correct. So now, the indiscriminate switch to part two. <laughs> now you're all ready for it. How does this practically work out? And, and I would like to talk about one of our strengths, your strengths as a church. And that is the strength of generosity. You are a generous church. We are a generous church. You are generous people in, in, in so many ways. That, to me, is just so obvious and clear. Some of you are extraordinary examples of this. Jesus said this, Matthew 6, next slide. Beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. Otherwise, you, will, you have no reward with your Father who is in heaven. So, when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Jesus says this, a righteous person is a generous person. And a generous person is a righteous person. I think that's fascinating. When, when we think about a righteous person, what is the first thing that comes to your mind? The first thing that came to Jesus' mind was there, that you're a generous person. I, I mean, what we tend to think of like morality or not doing immorality. Those are important. He's not saying, well, go and do immorality. But it's, it's critical. And I, here's what I think is happening here. When you understand the big picture of the Bible, then you understand when God talks about righteousness, he's talking about loving God and loving others first and foremost. Yes, morality comes in there, but it's down the list. Many of you have demonstrated your integrity over the years through your generosity. Just let that word, thinking, enter our brains. Is that person a person of integrity? Are they a generous person? That is key to being a person of integrity. To put it in our language. The next slide, which is kind of a repeat of that, this is in the Psalms. Just make sure it's not just Jesus. Light arises in darkness for the upright, those who are righteous. That person is gracious, which is also translated generous in other places and in, by certain translations compassionate and righteous. 
It is well with the man who is gracious and lends. He will maintain his cause in judgment, for he will never be shaken. The righteous will be remembered forever. He has given freely to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted in honor. When the psalmist talks about the person who is upright and all of these things, he says he's generous, he's compassionate. Those are the ways he describes the righteous person. Now, for us, I, the generosity and there, I have three, I think it's four ways that I just want to applaud you all for. The first one is generosity with all of our resources, all of your resources. So it's a lot of times we think of generosity, we just think money, you know, being generous, and that is part of it without question. But it is also generous with your time, generous with your skills, using the things that you do well for the benefit of others, generous with things, and generous with service, and generous with your presence and your relationship. And we just have so many good examples in our church of this. Philippians 4.8, the second one, is generosity of thought and spirit. And now, dear brothers and sisters, one final thing. Fix your thoughts on what is true and honorable and right and pure and lovely and admirable. Think about these things that are excellent and worthy This verse relates to thinking of, of all things that are good and honorable and go through the list. So it would include our thoughts and our spirit towards others. So when we think about other people, our thoughts are true, honorable about that person, right, pure, lovely, admirable. A generous person sees other, others in Christ as image bearers of God. It's people who are loved by Jesus and filled with Jesus. We need to learn in being generous of spirit how to see Jesus in other people. In his character, not necessarily the beard. Now, this does not mean we ignore issues or sin. Sometimes we need to correct and admonish and critique someone, but that should always be done seeing them in Jesus. Gentleness, grace, and kindness. There, I think one challenging thing for humans, which would include all of us here, hopefully, as one of you is an alien. <laughs> Never know. Is balancing in the scripture reproof and con con correction with 
Love covering a multitude of sins. That is hard. I, I, that's a struggle. And it depends on our personality, which we go, which side we go to. Some just, you know, they just don't want to deal with anything. And I know someone like that. And it's, so they just, you know, they'll just cover the multitude of sins. Whether they should be covered or not, <laughs> some of us come. Then others, us to the other side. But we need to balance that. That's hard. Third generosity is, um, and it's next slide, Romans 14, generos a Generous Orthodoxy, which is a book by a guy by the name of Brian McLaren, but I'm not going to talk about that book. Um, but it's a great title, so it works perfectly. And really, it's, it's generous with other people. It's pertaining to things of theology, beliefs, and opinions about the Bible and Christian practice. And I've talked about this a lot. We've gone through Romans so many times. But just look at it. Now, receive the one who's weak in faith. Okay, this is like about faith, Christianity, beliefs, differences, and do not have disputes over different opinions. Wow. Just plaster that on social media, on the television, everywhere in America. Plaster it everywhere. One person believes in eating everything, but weak, the weak person eats only vegetables. Who are you to pass judgment on another servant before his own master? He stands or falls, and he will stand for the Lord's day. He'll make him stand. One person regards one day holier than the other days. So what? He doesn't say that. And another regards them all like each must be fully convinced in his own mind. Have convictions. Live them out with confidence. But know that the other person is doing the same. God is good with both of them. And that just seems so wrong to us that God could be good with both of them. But it's okay with God. So you might want to think the problems with us, not with him. It's usually best to think that way. St. Augustine said, in the essentials, unity. Now, the essentials have been talked about for thousands of years, two thousands of years in the church. And they, Augustine would have been referring to the creeds, which there are several. And if you ever read any of the creeds, what you'll find is one thing, they are short. And they, cons they consist of a list of five or six things. And there are some things that, as Christians, there's no room to move. Those are found in those creeds. In the non-essentials, that's everything else. You know, a lot of that. Diversity. And in all things, charity, or we might use the word generosity. John Ferentz and I had coffee the other day. And when he was talking about, you know, eventually having to look for another church, he said, what I'm going to do is, you know, when I walk into a church, I just want to know that, you know, say, well, we believe in the creeds and everything else we can talk about. 
And I thought, that, I like that. We have to talk about a lot of other stuff. You know, and we have to work out those things. But those are discussions. The essentials are things we must hold to and everything else we can talk about. Come to understanding. The fourth one, I believe this is the final generosity. And that's the next slide, Hebrews 6.10, and that's generous hospitality. Again, another strength in our church. Hebrews, for God is not unjust. He will not forget how hard you have worked for him and how you have shown your love to him by caring for the believers as you still do. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, again in Hebrews, for the, by doing, by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Three ways to be generous that you all have been generous. First is welcoming and receiving strangers. Now, you do this individually, but here's a church, visitors, of, we've done this well, receiving and accepting and welcoming visitors to our church. You have created a safe atmosphere and a comfortable atmosphere in this church. We've made progress in this. There's been times where it's not been as good. We all know that. You're not perfect, <laughs> just to let you know, in case you were wondering, and I'm not either. We, I think also really good at extending friendship. You and including people in your relationships. Second way we've done hospitality is in our gatherings. Whether it's Sunday church or small groups or ministries, I think hospitality tends to be our, our natural focus within those things. I think you all just, that's, as a church, I think that's been our spirit. And it's developed over the years. And through our difficulties, that has come out all the more. And then we have, you know, practical hospitality that we all enjoy, you know, having meals together and just random people making cake on Sunday morning. I mean, where do you get that? <laughs> Only here. I don't know if you've ever looked at, like, you get your coffee and your tea. How many boxes of different kinds of tea there are back there? Where do you get that? Other than a store. And then third, and I've mentioned this, but the personal individual hospitality that you show to one another. There, I just know, because, you know, it's my job to know, um, but so many people gather together just apart from this. Just taking initiative and, and doing stuff. taking meals to one another when somebody needs them. So much takes place in secret here. People just do stuff. 
And that's a sign of generous spirit. I think, too, and I'll close with this, many of you have become close friends. Can't be close friends with everybody. But you all have people that, no matter what, down the road, you'll be close friends. No matter what happens, those friendships will never end. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for each person who's contributed and meant so much to our church here. We just bless you for that. We ask, Lord, that you would help us and continue to excel still more. Lord, I pray the example we, we've set here would go beyond here and have an impact in this Christian world and context that we live in. Because I think generosity, generous spirit, generous thoughts is so needed today. In your name we pray. Amen. God so loved that he gave, because he's generous.
the God before whom Moses and Isaiah fell down on their faces and from whom the cherubs hide their faces is in a stable. If this story were merely a myth, we could smile and ignore it. It isn't a myth, it's a fact. What happened at the manger wasn't designed to put us in a holiday mood. It was designed to shake us to the roots of our souls. All right, next service is over.